Good morning, witches. This is the Witch Daily Show, coming to you from New Orleans, with host Tanya Brown. Our episodes span about 20 minutes long to give you just a little pop of magic. So, tune in, take a deep breath, and enjoy. Good morning. It is October 6th, 2023. It is Friday. I am Tanya, and this is the Witch Daily Show. Today's episode is brought to you by Flutterby Fox Designs. So let's get your day going with a little magic. Our quote of the day is It's a full moon tonight. That's why all the weirdos are out. By Danny Hocus Pocus. So we are drinking Basic Witch, which is a pumpkin spice tea. Embrace your inner basic witch and sip on this tea proudly. Premium black tea from Sri Lanka flavored with pumpkin and zesty spices. So this tea is black tea with cinnamon, ginger, cloves, cardamom, and marigold flowers. So today we're talking about cinnamon, and we've already talked quite a bit about cinnamon, but I wanted to talk a little bit about the folklore, and this actually comes to us from McCormickScienceInstitute.com. I love that they have a folklore section. Cinnamon was one of the first known spices. In ancient Egypt times, much of the world's cinnamon came from China, and the Romans believed that cinnamon's fragrance was sacred, and they burned it at funerals. But it was not popular as a cooking spice. Then, in medieval Europe, cinnamon became a favorite flavor in many banquet foods. It was also regarded as an appetite stimulant, a digestive, and aphrodisiac, and a treatment for coughs and sore throats. Because cinnamon was one of the first spices sought in the 15th century European explorations, some say it indirectly led to the discovery of, well, discovery, quote-unquote, of the U.S. Between the 16th and 18th century, the Dutch and Portuguese brutally fought to control the cinnamon plantations of Ceylon, which is now uh, Sri Lanka. So, fascinating. All right, moving into some headlines. This I actually came across when I was looking at some other headlines, but I thought it was so fascinating. And it kind of uh, harkens back to last October when we talked about cryptids all month. But this is about the ancient Greek goddess Chimera and how she embodied the fear of females. The Greek goddess Chimera, who was referenced in... Hesedon's 7th century BC work, Theogony, and featured in Homer's Iliad, was a monstrous composition of parts that embodied an ancient fear of females. Remember how uh, last year when we did the series on cryptids, for each cryptid I tried to think about what does this monster fulfill, or this creature or goddess, whatever it was we were talking about. What does it fulfill for the human psyche? And we're kind of seeing this here again with the Chimera archetype. And 
like we talked about, especially when it comes to things like Medusa or Sirens, it's this fear of women. Like so many other Greek goddesses, like Medusa, Lamia, she seemed to have been created out of men's fears regarding the power of females. She was a fearsome lion in the front, a goat in the middle, and became yet another terrible animal in the back, a dragon or a snake. She not only breathed fire, but she was able to fly through the air and ravage helpless towns. In particular, she seemed to have uh, a, a kind of specific wrath for Lisa, an ancient maritime district in which is now southwest Turkey. That is until a male, the hero, Belrophon, managed to lodge a lead-tipped sphere into her throat and choke her to death. Interestingly, in Greek mythology, it's always a male figure that kills a female goddess or figure that seemingly threatens men or the status quo. Of all the fictional monsters of Greek mythology, and certainly of female monsters, Chimera may have the strongest roots in reality. Her portrayal was subject of a recent article by journalist and critic Jess Zimmerman, who argues in Women and Other Monsters Building a New Mythology that women have been monsters and monsters have been women in centuries worth of stories because stories are a way to encode these expectations and pass them on, which was a huge theme that we talked about last October, if you remember. Uh, uh, it's really just fascinating. And we talked about how you can kind of look at a culture or a time period's boogeyman story and get an idea of what they're afraid of. You know, look at the horror movies we're coming out with right now. That's a commentary on what we deem grotesque or what we deem scary. It is true that frightening female creatures feature in cultural traditions and the world over, but Zimmerman focused on ancient Greek and Roman works of literature and art, which have had by far the most influence on American culture. Several historians argue that her origin is an example of euhemerism, which is an ancient mythology which might have actually corresponded to historical fact. Indeed, the people of Lisa may have been so frightened by nearby geographical activity at Mount Chimera, a geothermically active area where methane gas would ignite and seep through cracks in rocks, and assumed that it was like their fear of that mountain that created the story. So how women who historically are commonly classified as sweet and supposedly consistently even-tempered ever came to be associated with a feared volcano, we, we, we don't know. We, we don't know. But the small bursts of flames that came out of the mountain spooked the local people so much that legends came to be created about them. For ancient Greeks who came to tell stories about the monster, Chimera's particularly combination of fearsome and dangerous beasts and the domestic goat represented a hybrid, a contradictory horror that mirrored the way women were perceived as both symbols of domesticness but also potential threats in much of Greek mythology. With the goat representing uh, motherhood, you know, the lion representing this predator, and then this 
beast in the back. You can kind of see how it all comes to be. So as noted in Greek Reporter's series on stories, Chimera, the lore, mostly like went after men, right? And then men had to tame, capture, and kill. Very fascinating. There's a PBS video on this if you're interested. And I'll actually share this in the Discord and on the Facebook group. All right, witches, I'm going to throw this over to our moon correspondent. And after this break, we will talk more. Hello to all of my astro friends. This is Serendipity, the Chicago astrologer, coming at you with your daily moon mantra for Friday, October 6th. The last quarter moon eats some comfort food in Cancer today. Here, the moon squares the sun. The sun in Libra wants to be sociable and bring everybody together. The moon in Cancer would prefer to enjoy its own company and curl up with a good book. It's hard to square this circle. Getting out and being among loved ones will give you a boost today, but you will also need to give yourself plenty of time to decompress. Try not to force anything. Do get out and be amongst people you care for, but also give yourself permission to duck out once you feel depleted. Your daily moon mantra is, you can do anything, but not everything. This has been your daily moon mantra with Serendipity, the Chicago astrologer, signing off and reminding you that you are in charge of your own destiny. Flutter by Fox Designs was created with the crafty witch in mind. Our stationery is well suited for any witch, occultist, or writer of the fairy tale persuasion. Whether you're sending letters to fellow spellcasters, creating a book of shadows, compiling herbal remedies, or journaling about the magic found within each day, Flutter by Fox Designs has the writing paper to fit your needs. Custom orders are always welcome. Visit flutterbyfoxdesigns.com. That's F-L-U-T-T-E-R-B-Y foxdesigns.com. Or find us on Etsy. Use coupon code WITCHDAILY for 20% off your first order. Flutter by Fox Designs, your source for enchanting stationery and so much more. All right, so we are back. And I'm actually really excited about this one. We are talking today about the Pied Piper. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't know this had any correspondence to urban legend or lore. I always just, I don't know. I never thought about it at all. Whenever I thought about the Pied Piper, I was like, oh, it's someone who played a pipe. And like, that's just what they call people who play pipes, like cobblers, they fix shoes. You call them a cobbler. I was like, I'm sure every village had a guy who played a flute and they just called him a Pied Piper. So I didn't even know that this was like a thing. So I'm so excited that we're digging into it today. So this comes to us from BBC and is written by Raphael Kardashian. Writers like Grimm Brothers and Robert Browning may have shaped the Pied Piper legend into art, but it turns out the story is actually based on an actual historical incident. Every working morning for the last 26 years, Michael Boyer has slipped into a pair of tights, tied on a lipstick red cape, grabbed his flute, and marched out into the medieval seats of Hamelin, a town of 60,000 residents in Lower Saxon Germany. 
Most people recognize him for what he is, the Pied Piper Incarnate, appointed by Hamelin to impersonate its simultaneously favorite and least favorite adopted son. Responsible for meeting and greeting visiting groups and dignitaries, he leads tours of the city and embodies the enduring hold of the legend that draws most travelers there. The tale, in fact, has survived a very long time. Originating as medieval folklore, the story inspired a goth version, a Grimm Brothers legend, The Children of Hamelin, and one of Robert Browning's best-known poems, The Pied Piper of Hamelin. Although each writer tinkered with the story, the basic remained the same. The piper was hired by Hamelin to rid the town of its plague of rats, trailing after hypnotic notes of the rat catcher's magical flute. The rodents politely filed through the city gates to their presumed doom. They weren't the only ones lured by the music, though. When the town refused to pay the Pied Piper for his service, the savior turned into a more satanic seducer and came for Hamelin's children. Entranced by notes of his flute, the transfixed boys and girls followed the piper out of the town and vanished. While the tale has endured, so has Hamelin itself, which still looks as though it belongs in a fairy tale. Boyer's tour, uh, tour leads visitors past rows of half-timbered houses. There are 16th-century manors encrusted with Gothic gables and scrollwork. So, it really is, however, just a background for the town's real cottage industry, which cashes in on all things Pied Piper. The local restaurants plate a rat tail signature dish made from thickly sliced pork, and bakeries do a brisk business in rodent-shaped breads and cakes. The Hamelin Museum offers a sound and light Pied Piper reenactment, and local actors open on a open-air Pied Piper play during summer, and the souvenir shops hawk their own rat-inspired memorabilia. You can go home. If you wish, loaded with Pied Piper t-shirts, fridge magnets, mugs, and flutes. What could pass for mere comic relief, though? Mask sometimes deeper and suggest why the legend lives on, not only in Hamelin, but in folklore. On some level, the tale stokes a primal fear with the Piper a version of a universal boogeyman that continues to haunt us. Parents everywhere still fear the loss of their babies. Children popping up on the nightly news still go missing every day, and then we all ultimately vanish in an instant. The Piper, in the end, is a grim reaper. But if the tale evokes a universal fear... It still resonates most strongly in Hamelin, and the Piper's tour suggests why. In fact, the real surprise of his tours isn't so much the beautifully preserved townscape, but it's the suggestion that the Pied Piper is more than just a fairy tale. The Grimm brothers and Browning may have shaped the legend into art, but the story is based on an actual incident. 
In AD 1284, on the 26th of June, the day of St. John and St. Paul, 130 children born in Hamelin were led out of town by a piper wearing multi-color clothes. After passing the cavalry near Copenburg, they disappeared forever. The proof is etched on Hamelin's face itself. An inscribed plaque on the stone facade that so-called Pied Piper House, a half-timbered private residence dating back to 1602, similar to an even earlier etching on the building's windows, bears explicit witness to the mystery. An entry in Hamelin's town records dating back to 1384 laments that it is 100 years since our children left. The stained glass window in the town St. Nikolai Church, destroyed in the 17th century, described an earlier account reportedly illustrated by the figure of the Pied Piper, the figure of the Pied Piper leading several ghostly white children. And the 15th century Lundberg manuscript, an early German account of the event, along with five historical memory verses, some in Latin, others in Middle Low German, all refer to a similar story of 130 children or young people vanishing on June 26, 1284. The Pied Piper, more than a fairy tale, becomes the emblem of a profound historical mystery. What happened to the missing children of Hamelin? Still the master seducer, the memorizing rat catcher is now leading a whole new trail of entranced followers. This time, a conga line of historians, each taking their own deep dive into the question of exactly what transpired on Hamilton in June 1284. One of the leading theories suggests that the town's youth were part of a migration of Germans to Eastern Europe fueled by an economic depression. In this scenario, the Pied Piper played a role of a so-called locator or recruiter. They were responsible for organizing migrations to the East and were said to have worn colorful garments and played an instrument to attract the attention of possible settlers. While some historians believe that the youth immigrated to Transylvania, others possibly think it is probably Berlin. One more intriguing theory that points to the medieval phenomena of dancing mania driven by a succession of pandemics and natural disasters, the dancing plague is documented as uh, surfacing in continental Europe as early as the 11th century. It's a form of mass hysteria. The dance could spread from individuals to large groups, all driven by an unshakable compulsion to dance. Perhaps, some theorize, Hamelin witnessed a similar plague dancing to the tune of the piper. But all of these theories neglect one specific key to the Hamelin mystery. They don't explain a very particular date cited for the loss of the children and the local sense of trauma. Did something happen that officials have been covering up? Something so traumatic that it was transmitted orally for so long in the town's collective memory over decades, over centuries. If the tale suggests a possible historical tragedy, though, it also offers an artistic redemption as well. The Pied Piper story, 
is, to our knowledge, known in at least 42 countries and 30 languages. The Pied Piper shared heritage of many people, and that cultural heritage connects people. Ultimately, then, the Piper didn't just fracture a community. He also, in the end, brought together one larger. What an incredible story. And this one really doesn't need me theorizing because the, you know, the article, the BBC does it quite well. But I do agree. I think the reason this tale has lasted for so long, like, again, what do we as humans get from it? One, we all love a mystery and mysteries tend to last. But also it's that fear, right? That fear of people losing their children. And when it maybe actually happens or there's quote unquote proof of it, it re it revalidates and it makes that fear stronger, right? So if people fear, oh, I'm worried someone's going to take my child and someone goes, well, that hasn't happened in this village in 200 years. Someone can point to the Pied Piper and go, yes, but it happened there, right? And that just kind of reinforces our fears and these legends and it kind of makes sense it would last i didn't know anything about this it was so fascinating all right witches we are wrapping up this episode of the witch daily show i want to give a shout out to listener tiffany kaylin tiffany you beautiful opulent barn owl Next, we have Katie Garcia, you scrumptious, fancy pixie. And Arlene Fried, you glorious Arcadian garden nymph. Thank you three so much for being Patreon supporters. I really appreciate it. And before we leave, we do have a card poll. Our card today is Victorious from Dark Magic Oracle. When Victorious appears, it's telling you that you can express your strongest display of strength in letting yourself be helped. If you feel overwhelmed by the pressures of other people's poor behavior, bullying, demands, this card says it's time to ask for help. Let go of the need to hide and pretend it isn't happening, as well as your attachment to fear and resentment or anger and accept assistance. All right, witches, that is all I've got for you today. Do I have any housekeeping? I do have some housekeeping. Okay, so this is kind of your last chance to sign up for the August 8th class. This is going to be via Zoom. It's going to be recorded. So if you can't make it, uh, still sign up for a slot. This tells me who to email. Um, I will send a Zoom recording along with handouts. So you will have um, options if you can't make the time slots. So this is a class on the cycle of witchcraft, which is a term I coined in my book, The Door to Witchcraft, and basically is a step-by-step guide of, okay, you feel like magic needs to be done. Now what? So it's kind of how do we get from the need of wanting to do something magical to knowing what to do, knowing how to do it. And seeing if you need to do it again. So it's, again, kind of this idea of you're in a situation, you feel like magic needs to be done, but you're stumped. And I will go over the cycle of witchcraft 
each step and I'll go over ways that you can, again, step by step. Here is what you can do. Here is how you can know where to go next and feel really secure. And it's also a system of witchcraft that I feel is just really efficient, right? There isn't going to be a lot of room for error. And if there is error, uh, error, we, we go to the next step right? So if that's something that interests you, it's an hour-long class. Sometimes we go a little over, uh, but I always figure giving you more is better than giving you less, I guess. So it's going to be on uh, October 8th. There's going to be an afternoon class and an evening class. You can sign up from the link in our link tree or uh, any other link you've seen around, or, or you can go to, let me pull the link, Tanya Brown, one word, tanyabrown.schedulista.com. And you can sign up there. It's $25 for the hour, but you have access to email me, ask questions, you get handouts, a Zoom recording. So I really, really hope that uh, it's worth your time. And I really hope you enjoy it. So that's going to be on October 8th. So it's kind of like, if you're going to sign up, sign up now. And there are limited seats. Hopefully by the time this comes out, there's still seats available. Uh, but yeah. All right, witches, that is all I've got for you today. Don't forget any books, decks, headlines, sources, anything we referenced today can be found in the podcast episode description or witchpod.com. And we will talk again tomorrow. Bye. Witches, we hope you have a wonderful day full of joy and gentleness and confidence. Links for this week's episodes, our website, Patreon, along with a free daily card pull can be found at witchpod.com. One stop for everything we talk about. Now, take one more deep breath and have a great day. <laughs>